This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, we look at the province's plan to license more trained nurses. Is it enough? Plus, what does Metro Vancouver need to do to better prepare for future storms? And life after the C-suite, former Premier and Patterson Group President Glenn Clark joins us to talk politics, business, and retirement. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. First, focus on the issue of the day. Today, the BC government announced new supports uh, to help hire and train more nurses and midwives licensed across the province in order to take pressure off this trained health care system. Uh, Premier David Eby said the new measures will support Canadian trained nurses who want to get back into the workforce as well as internationally trained nurses looking to practice in BC. Take a listen. So we had grants for internationally educated nurses, but those nurses had to pay those grants up front and then be reimbursed later. So now our government will be covering over $3,700 upfront in application assessment fees for internationally trained nurses. So that that application fee does not stand in the way of them practicing in British Columbia. Joining me now to talk a little bit about attracting uh, healthcare workers to our province is uh, Global BC legislative reporter Richard Zussman. Good afternoon, Richard. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. So walk me through this. Uh, it's in, in regards to dollars, it's not a huge announcement. Uh, I'm going to assume we're going to hear more from the Premier and the government on this issue because this is one of those core issues that he keeps talking about in regards to health care and the strain that the system is under right now. Yeah, but it's, you know, $3,700 is not a lot of money, but you multiply that by the thousands of people the province hopes this will attract And then it starts adding up. And the province believes that these fees, these administrative fees, assessment fees, were uh, getting in the way of foreign accredited nurses from actually practicing in the system. The number that stood out to me was that the premier said there are 2,000 people currently in the queue that could be working in the healthcare system in this province between four to nine months from now. And yes, the crisis is right now, but as you and I have talked about a lot, Jazz, and as you know, government moves slowly. Four to nine months is pretty fast. Mm -hmm. And to get those nurses in the system uh, would help alleviate some of the pressure. To give people a sense of how behind we are right now, there are about 5,500 shortages in the healthcare system. And that's just to get up to full staffing levels, not just to deal with the fact that we have uh, record-breaking numbers of absenteeism due to illness in the system. We already have a system under pressure. This time of year is always the toughest on the healthcare system. So all of that aside, the hope is that this change today can get 2,000 nurses into the system sooner than possible. And the last number on top of that is 5,000, which is the number of people aside from the 2,000 who have expressed interest in working in our healthcare system who are foreign trained nurses. 
Why has it taken so long, do you think? I mean, I, I, yeah. all well and good for the Premier to say this to and I get that. Uh, but we were having these conversations uh, in the 1990s when we had an NDP government. We've had 16 years of BC Liberals. And uh, what I have difficulty in, in sort of just understanding is why has it taken us to today to make this announcement and to acknowledge some of the challenges? Why do you think we have not been able to deal with this issue many, many years ago? Yeah, and I think I've tried to wrap my head around this, and that's one of the questions I contemplated asking today, because whenever you see these announcements that seemingly solve a problem, in essence, immediately, you wonder, what took so long? Like, we know that this is a jurisdiction, British Columbia, that attracts people from all around the world. We also know that we have uh, a limited amount of training spots here for British Columbians, so they will often go to... Uh, universities, uh, programs outside of this country and get trained. And then to come back here, there are these added steps you must go through. These aren't new problems. The, The challenge here, though, is this combination of a need and a desire to solve the problem quickly. There would have been over time resistance from governments, from medical colleges, from unions around allowing for a fast-tracking of foreign accreditation in fear that it would be over those who are trained and live here. We're now at a point where we have such a shortfall Mm -hmm. and such a need for this that colleges, unions, and governments are willing to, in essence, bend over backwards to remove some of the uh, impediments and bureaucracy that has been put in the way. That's... That's the only way, Jazz, I can wrap my head around it. Because like you said, I have been wondering this all day as well. Because yeah. it's it's not suddenly one of those things where the rules have changed or an opportunity has come up. These are longstanding issues, as, as you mentioned. And, that's, and I think you've articulated it very well and like a good Canadian, very politely as well. But it is struck, there have been structural challenges before people. Like it, uh, I, and when, you know, I've sat down with former cabinet ministers even in a pre, couple of premiers, and privately had these conversations. And, and the, you know, from what I, my general sense of things when you talk to them is, you know, unions, uh, it's better to have a small shortfall of people because it's much better when, when you're negotiating for a wage increase. I'm not blaming unions here. I'm just using this as an example. You have accreditation agencies, whether it be for doctors or whatever other profession it may be. Sometimes it's spaces in universities as well. But that collective response... Uh, in regards to an immigrant coming to this country that is foreign trained, we have put up so many barriers in front of them, whether they get accreditation, how long that accreditation may last, whether unions are supportive of it, whether schooling it means four or five more years of university in Canada when you have a family to feed and rent to pay, you can't afford to go to school for five years. So all the right. collective sort of uh, impediments, barriers that we put forward, it's all sort of come home to roost now where we, we it's actually uh, it forces the system to say, okay, maybe we better move some of these barriers out of the way now and quick. Yeah, and at the same time, we had this record number of nurses and, and other healthcare workers retiring early because of the pressure they felt through the pandemic. And so it led to, like you mentioned, it is a fragile ecosystem at times. <laughs> you know, what holds up our healthcare system, our education system? It is built on these assumptions that we make over time. And you have a disruptor like a global pandemic, and all of a sudden that house of cards starts to tumble. And it forces governments to 
uh, get creative in policies that they may not have considered previously for various reasons, like you and I have spoken to. Cost is one of them. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, pissing off your political uh, allies is another one that, that comes into play often in these cases. So, you know, this policy is a good one. And, and I think, you know, it, it, it's not me saying that. It's the nurses union saying that. It's the college saying that. Uh, there are a lot of people coming forward and saying this is the sort of policy that we need. And, you know, Adrian Dix is always quick to point out when he took over in 2017, Canada or B.C. was last in Canada when it came to number of nurses per capita, hiring new nurses. And mm-hmm. we are not last anymore. And there has been a more aggressive approach towards filling that void in a healthcare system that we have seen has many of them. Uh, behind the scenes, uh, does the government feel comfortable that they'll be able to deal with the, de- the, the demands when, uh, that are being put on our healthcare system right now? Whether it's COVID, whether it's shortage of doctors, whether shortage of nurses, all of these collective forces add in, uh, you know, ambulance workers or a lack of ambulance workers and emergency rooms not being open twenty four seven. How comfortable are you hearing behind the scenes that the government feels it can it can deal with the the the, the, the huge challenge that is before our healthcare system? Yeah, I think. There's a confidence because there has to be a confidence that it is by necessity that the system must go on. And we're not at the point yet, Jazz, where we are seeing a consideration around mass cancellation of surgeries. But the reality is, with the system as short-staffed as it is when it comes to nurses and other healthcare workers, with a high level of absenteeism, there will no doubt be situations where surgeries will have to be postponed. In terms of delivering emergency frontline medicine, uh, there's a confidence that that can continue, but it will require a type of flexibility that we rarely see. People will be receiving care in different parts of hospitals where they may not be familiar, that people going in for uh, some routine surgeries may be moved out of hospital after the surgery is done sooner than you know in a situation where there was more room. All of that will be testing the system and, and forcing patients to look at healthcare a little bit differently uh, than they would have before because the services they are getting may look and feel a little bit different than if we weren't in a state of crisis. We have hospitals in this province right now that are over 100% capacity, and today's announcement won't address that, but shows a commitment towards trying to ensure that these sort of situations um, aren't as problematic for the system. But we are going to have people today who are in situations where they're walking into a hospital where there are no beds for them. And the hospitals will ensure that people find that space to get the care they need. The, the most important reminder here from the health minister continues to be, if you need to receive health care in this province, go and get it from your hospital, from your emergency room, your urgent primary care center, your family doctor, the system is still functioning. Um, that comes down to their confidence, Jazz. But adding anything extra, any frills on that, it's just not possible with the pressures we're feeling. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. We're talking a little bit about today's announcement from Premier Eby uh, in regards to attracting more nurses to British Columbia. Let's uh, talk uh, about uh, government still, but a different type of government. Now, Kevin McCarthy's struggle to be elected House Speaker was a riveting civics lesson that Americans and Canadians watched on TV thanks to C-SPAN's rare opportunity to have roving cameras uh, in the chamber. Now, the Public Service Network, which broadcasts congressional proceedings, is typically restricted in what shots it can film on government-controlled cameras by the majority 
party in the chamber. Those very cameras are the ones that provide footage to CNN, uh, to CTV, to Global, to all the other uh, international and national broadcasters as well. But without a speaker in place, as the votes dragged on, the swearing-in of members and the adoption of a rules package were delayed, leaving C-SPAN with full freedom to focus its shots at the direction of its camera operators. Now, the footage caught lawmakers in conversation with their colleagues across the aisle, highlighting... Many would say more the inner workings of the intense debates uh, than the cameras are usually allowed to capture. Now, CNN and many other broadcasters, of course, use that very feed. Take a listen. Kevin McCarthy walks off the... He does not look happy. Somebody can change. Seven, Kevin McCarthy games. walks off the floor. No, he's, he's talking... Or he's, I'm sorry, he walks up the floor, rather. Matt Gates. he needed him to vote... Yes, not present. Trying to convince him. He appears to be trying to convince Matt Matt Gates to vote yes and not present. That doesn't look like a guy saying yes to Kevin McCarthy. What a sight to see. This is quite a sight to behold. And votes. Kevin McCarthy needs one vote to become Speaker of the House. He does not look. Matt Gates does not look like he is willing to acquiesce and change his vote from present. Yes, some guy in the back who was Literally went up to yell at Gates in a pink tie, and another member pulled him back. McHenry seems to be trying to talk Kevin down, Kevin McCarthy down a little bit here. It was uh, quite fascinating if you fi- follow politics. In fact, uh, that C-SPAN feed uh, actually had higher ratings than some reality shows, if you can believe, uh, on Thursday and on Friday. Now, we have a similar system here. Legislative Services uh, provides the feed uh, to uh, networks, including um, Global and CTV and CBC. Uh, Richard, uh, your thoughts on all this? I mean, you're, you're a student of politics. I'm sure you follow this very closely, watch very closely. Uh, do you think it's something we should consider here in British Columbia? I know it's rare there as well, but do you think it's something that's time that we tried that very that system in legislatures here in Canada? Absolutely. And it comes down to one pivotal moment for me, Jazz, and it was one that you could witness, but many in the public couldn't, which was the day that Christy Clark lost her confidence vote. And it was an historic moment in BC's history, and there is no video or picture of Christy Clark reacting to that moment of losing the vote. Hansard's feed went to a wide shot of the chamber as the votes were read, as they do in those situations, and there is no historic record of the reaction of losing one's job on the floor of the legislature. And that moment alone, Jazz, to me, is enough of an argument to argue that journalists, camera operators, still photographers, should be able to capture those moments on the floor of the B.C. legislature and the floor of Parliament and the floor of other legislatures uh, at the Senate, at the House of Representatives in Washington, uh, D.C. I think it is essential for the public now at a time where everybody carries a camera around in their pocket Mm -hmm. that we can see these moments. And institutions like legislatures, and if you want to go that far, courts, have an obligation to allow the public to see the inner workings because that is what allows for trust in our systems and uh, accessibility to our public system. And and I've been advocating for it as the president of the press gallery Mm -hmm. for years now to work with the speaker here, Raj Shohan, to work with Clerk Kate Ryan Lloyd to move towards a system where the public can have more access. Hanser does a great job. It is an amazing service. 
they put together uh, an ability for people to tune in to legislative debates and question period every day. But they aren't looking at it in a lens of journalists around some of the critical things. And I've been told one of the challenges here is that MLAs and ministers often have private information in binders in front of them. And there are worries that the cameras could pick up some of that information. And I think we need to work together to ensure that that private information not become public, but also give people an opportunity to see it. There have been times where the legislature here has granted special access to still photographers and video photographers, similar to what we saw in Washington, but it's rare and it's not always the times where it's most needed. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, I think there are moments uh, where it would work, and I think you're absolutely right to, to ensure our faith in the system. It's the right direction to go. Uh, and I probably read a book on some of the things I saw. We'll save that for another <laughs> day. My friend, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure as always. Thanks, Jess. Speaking of government, uh, one of the conversations we've had in the last five weeks or so is our government's ability to respond to snowstorms. Of course, we had that early December snowstorm. We had one right before Christmas as well. Uh, In case of the first one, uh, there were some folks uh, who had a 12-hour commute uh, heading home. Um, Daniel Fontaine is one of those um, city councillors. He's a new Westminster councillor who uh, has been advocating for a snow summit. So far, up to my understanding, it's been crickets from Victoria. But uh, Mr. Fontaine will be uh, presenting some ideas at New Westminster City Council today. He joins us now. Daniel, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. So what will you be discussing at tonight's council? So I put forward a motion to New Westminster Council, which will be debated later this evening, which hopefully will kickstart a process at Metro Vancouver. And the motion basically is broken up into two parts. It's asking our representative, who happens to be our mayor, who sits on uh, the Metro Vancouver board to hopefully work with, say, Councillor Linda Annis, who um, has supported and been working with me on this particular file, to get the snow summit underway and to get going in terms of trying to get answers to what happened and didn't happen on November 29th that impacted so many commuters uh, commuters that that night. And so there's a a part of the motion that speaks to that and hopefully gets Metro Vancouver engaged. The second part is um, we have a beautiful facility here in in the downtown New Westminster. It's Anvil Center, and it could definitely accommodate a snow summit. And I'm encouraging um, my colleagues to not only support the motion, but perhaps put forward uh, Anvil Centre as a location given it's right in the geographic centre of the Lower Mainland and it could definitely accommodate uh, some discussions on uh, what happened November 29th and hopefully we can get some answers. What do you wish to accomplish uh, in a snow summit if one were to go ahead? Yeah, it's basically to answer and I'll be speaking to that tonight in council to answer the unanswered questions about uh, why just a small amount of snow that we had that evening so disrupted our economy, it so disrupted the lives of literally hundreds of thousands of people, how it was able to bring us to our knees in terms of our, our, our transportation networks. These are pretty fundamental and, and serious questions that, to my knowledge, as you said, I'm hearing lots of crickets, I'm not hearing lots of answers. Uh, they're still outstanding, and I know we've moved on, the snow has melted, and, and perhaps some folks are hoping that we just stop talking about it. But I think it, you know, we're still early in this winter and it's, we could still get snow into January, February and even into March and then beyond that. And uh, the people who were so impacted by this snowfall and the, the resulting gridlock, they deserve answers. And to date, we've heard absolutely uh, nothing, in my opinion, in terms of providing concrete responses as to 
what actually happened and and, uh, how we can prevent it from happening again. Now, look, some people listening to this are going to say, wait a minute here, uh, Daniel Fontaine, and you too, Jazz Joel, you complain enough about all this, but at the end of the day, it's personal responsibility. Get winter tires, number one. Number Mm -hmm. two, if you can't drive or don't have experience driving uh, in these winter conditions, you shouldn't be on the road. What do you say to that argument? Well, uh, they're both good arguments, but what we saw on November 29th was somewhat, in my opinion, unique. I I have not seen a snowfall that has completely shut down major bridges, that completely has shut down people's ability to get from point A to point B in, in, you know, less than 12 hours when it normally takes me maybe 60 minutes. Something happened that night, and and our response to that snowfall was, um, many have referred to it as an epic fail. And yes, we have personal responsibility. People should have winter tires. You shouldn't get on the road if you're not able to drive in winter conditions. Those are all, I think, relatively understood. But it went beyond that. We've had snowfalls before where these conditions have happened, where people have not had winter tires. It hasn't shut down the entire economy and in the entire city. What I'm getting at and in, in tonight's motion is to try to begin to, to understand if there were just perhaps some unique circumstances and it'll never happen again. And if that is the case, we move on. But I have a feeling that there could have been a better response. And and based on the amount of emails I've received and phone calls and conversations on the street with people, they've had a lot of really interesting suggestions and ideas and, and theories as to what happened. But right now they're all theories and we don't know until the experts get in the room and we get, uh, get some answers as to what happened. Yeah, it's interesting when we talk about summer, uh, and, and, and I've talked to uh, your mayor in Westminster, Patrick Johnson, in the past, and he's really knowledgeable on the issue of cooling stations and dealing with the summer heat. We seem mm-hmm. to not be as enthusiastic, and many other responses as well, uh, but we seem to be less enthusiastic about dealing with winter storms, which, uh, as you say, impact uh, not only people, but the economy as well. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's a, you make a really good point on the heating, uh, set, the cooling centers during summer. So we do put a lot of emphasis on that, as we should. But when it comes to these type of winter events, you know, oftentimes I've heard people just say, well, you know, slap on a pair of winter tires and all the, all the problems will be resolved. I wish it were that simple. Uh, we saw major uh, bridges like the Portman and we saw, uh, you know, bridges like and, and the Dees Tunnel and other uh, bridges that were Alex Fraser shut down. I mean, they literally people could not get to and from uh, one place to the next. And I'm concerned when this happens again and we get another snow event that it's going to be a bit more serious because we might not have a fire truck make it out to um, to a building that's on fire or an ambulance might not get to somebody in time because we're in traffic gridlock. And I think the public expects that our collective Metro Vancouver leadership and the Minister of Transportation um, would have a, at least a modicum of, of interest, uh, uh, maybe a bit of interest in finding out what happened and uh, without it being a blame game, but maybe uh, looking at ways to prevent it in the future. And I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually quite dumbfounded, Jazz, that we've had uh, so little uh, response to just a simple request of having public officials come into a room and, and answer some questions. I think it's our West Coast perspective as well. I put, put away my winter jacket, by the way. I know it may snow again, <laughs> but I got a lighter winter jacket. I go, okay, the worst part of it is over, but, you know, I probably jinxed myself in the whole region just by doing that. You have absolutely jinxed it. I have lived here long enough to know, Jazz, that uh, it, it definitely snows in February and often around Valentine's Day, so you better get your winter coat to uh, keep it handy. There you go. Daniel, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Yeah, thanks for having me on. 
Well, there's intense interest in uh, tomorrow's release of Spare, Prince Harry's authorized biography across BC's uh, public libraries and bookstores. The Vancouver Sun uh, reports there have been close to 2,500 holds placed on paper, audio and electronic copies of the book at the Vancouver, Victoria, Fraser Valley and Surrey Public Libraries. Uh, Local bookstores are also preparing for that launch as well. Uh, Prince Harry uh, is reported to have been paid $20 million for writing the book. Now, some of the details in the book that we released tomorrow have already come out after a Spanish bookstore accidentally sold a few copies. Uh, this includes an admission, admission of cocaine use, that Harry was responsible for the death of 25 Taliban fighters, that his brother Prince William had physically attacked him, and that his brother and wife thought him wearing a Nazi uniform to a dress-up party was funny. Now, last night, um, in an interview with 60 Minutes, uh, Harry accused uh, members of the royal family of getting into bed with the devil. Uh, he specifically accused, accused his stepmother, Camilla, the queen consort, of leaking private conversations to the media to burnish, uh, burnish her reputation. Uh, he, of course, will be uh, promoting his book, which, of course, will be released tomorrow. Joining me now to talk about... Uh, this entire mess that is the royal family is Leah Halive. She's a TV reporter and radio host. Leah, thank you for joining us. Of course. Thanks for inviting me. I, you know, I, I, I haven't covered this story. And, and then I thought, you know what, I'm going to give Leah a call uh, and to chat with her about it because I'm trying to wrap my head around. She loves the royals. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. What do you make of all this? Uh, you know, this, this whole thing with... Uh, you know, betrayal and writing a book oh. and this Oprah interview and then that whole Netflix uh, series he did with his wife, uh, Megan. I mean, there's so much to unpack here. There really is. I mean, I watched the uh, 60 Minutes uh, with Prince Harry. I also watched GMA's take on it as well. And just to, like, quickly sum it up, of course, we'll talk more in depth, but Camilla apparently is Cruella DeVille. <laughs> King Charles is cold and unfeeling. Prince no William <laughs> has... Anger issues, yeah. <laughs> Kate is cold, and Megan is a victim. That's really what I summed up everything that I saw and heard. I mean, he was very genuine, though. I have to say, he seemed very sincere, and he has grown up like miles from what he was in the early two thousands. I'll tell you that. But <laughs> so much, right? I, I who would have known all the controversy within that family that he's actually shining a light on them for once, which is kind of nice in a way, the fact that I think he doesn't want people to blame him for a lot of things. So I think he wants to kind of say, look, look, look what they did, right? That's kind of how I feel. Yeah, it, 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 I was thinking, could you imagine all of them <laughs> in the, at the same Christmas dinner having a turkey? Oh, my God. All this fall that's floating <laughs> around. on that wall. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, all of that's transparent. You don't, you don't want to wish any of this, especially the high-profile manner uh, that we're seeing all this sort of play out in, 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 in real time. I guess yeah. the broader question beyond the sale of the books and, and the challenges, what do you make of the royal family? It's a tough question to answer, but, you know, the queen is gone, and she was really the true reflection of the royal family and tremendously respected. Uh, And now you have a king and you have uh, squabbling kids. I mean, and and then you look at (laughs) Canada, look at BC, got a multi-ethnic society. I mean, is, is the royal family relevant, I guess, is the question. 
I mean, to me, it's not. And I think the generations coming up, they're not. You know, I think maybe they're just kind of tabloid fodder for them now. It's kind of like, what's going on now? I don't I don't know how long they can sustain, you know, being relevant in today's world, especially over here in North America. You know, of course, in England, and, you know, in Europe, they still will probably matter for a while. But I don't know, with King Charles, King Charles taking over, I just think, you know, the fact that he said to the boys, and this stuck out to me, um, what Prince, said, Prince Harry said, that King Charles told the boys he didn't want his final years to be a misery. You know, like for him to say that to them, I guess when they had their last fight, it's kind of like, okay, so you're just worried about what, you know, people are going to think of you as a king. Do you not care that your kids are not talking to each other? Like, I think it's kind of sad, honestly. I think it's going to take a long time before they'll actually communicate because he said it's been a while already. So I think that... After this book, I mean, are they really ever going to communicate properly again? I don't think so. I can hope so. But I think this divide is just way too big for them to overcome. Yeah, I mean, the institution is challenged the best of times. I mean, even if you think about the passing of the Queen, but in the spirit mm-hmm. of reconciliation, even here in British Columbia, the BC Ferries would have a picture of the Queen. And yeah. government offices have pictures of the Queen. But I think with reconciliation, I think it was about six weeks ago, BC Ferries announced they're not going to have a picture of the Queen anymore because I guess it is a representation of colonialism and all those types of things. It's a small thing and, and, and sort of a side note to the, the, the conversation about the royals, but it is an important yeah. one because reconciliation is important. And, I, you know, those little things move to, let's say, you know, adding to government offices and and then you see all this play out, it goes down to once again, like how relevant are they going to be and, and, and how much interest do you have? I guess at the end of the day, the fact that there are 2,500 holds placed on paper, audio and electronic copies of the book in the library <laughs> systems in the lower mainland in Victoria kind of says a lot that, you know, we kind of roll our eyes a little bit, but boy, there's a lot of interest there. There's, well, I mean, he was really open talking about losing his virginity and like all that stuff. Oh, right, I wasn't Sorry expecting to to that. <laughs> oh, I was not expecting that, and how many kills he had in Afghanistan. Like he really opened up. I mean, I think maybe a little bit too much, but I think he just wanted everything on the table and to just kind of say, "There, there you go. Quit bugging me now. Quit asking questions. I've given my interviews. I've written a book. I've done a Netflix special. Now leave me alone." Yeah. That's kind of like sort of the feeling I get on that and maybe leave Megan alone as well. But, I mean, look at the press in the U.K. They're not going to leave this alone, right? This is going to go on for probably decades. I really just, I can't see with the things he said, them coming together. I mean, who knew that Will, you know, put his finger in Megan's face and, you know, was very upset at her for saying Kate had baby brain, you know? like And then she's like, get your finger out of my face. Like, who knew that would happen right so the fact that he pointed that out goes to show you about him and his brother like he called him his arch nemesis who says that right about your sibling when you're you know in your 30s so i, I kind of thought that was interesting the words he used the stories he told i'm sure there's probably five thousand more that we didn't know <laughs> that he's not going to tell us right so oh. he's kind of shining a light on what he's kind of dealt with. So can you imagine what else wasn't told? I don't know. Well, I think he just wrote next season's The Crown already, just based on what's come up. Can you imagine that season? Oh, how juicy would that be? Oh, what's coming? I guarantee you it's It's coming coming. because it's been being being written in real time from what I could tell. Leah, thank you for your time. Well, thanks for inviting me. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe 
Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, sneaker fans in Montreal will get to see a taste of the city on a soon-to-be-released pair of Nike Kicks. The Nike Dunk Low Montreal Bagel Sneakers are set for release on January 17th and pay tribute to one of the city's most famous culinary delights. Take a listen. When you think of bagels in Montreal, you think of cream cheese, you think of salmon locks, but also now you can think of Nike sneakers. This is the new release that will be coming out just in a couple of weeks by Nike. It's the Dunk Low Montreal Bagel-inspired sneaker, and that has graphics of sesame seeds on top of the sneaker, as well as a blue Montreal Nike swoosh. And they say that this is a Montreal-inspired sneaker through and through, all the way down to the box, which will have photos of Mount Royal and areas of Mile as well. So there you go, the Nike Dunk Low Montreal Bagel Sneaker. So that got us thinking here at our morning meeting, if we were to have a Nike shoe that would have Vancouver features, what would you call it? What, what features would it have? Well, joining me, joining me now are our two producers for the show, Ryan Lee Hall and Stephen Chang. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hello. Hello, Jazz. Hello. So I, this is probably, and there's lots of stuff going on in the world, but I'm not sure why this ate up so much of our time today in the office, but I thought it'd be a good conversation to have. So, Steve, let me start with you. If you were to design a shoe that would reflect Vancouver and all our wonderful, great things, our foibles, whatever it may be, what would you call that shoe, and what, 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 would, what would it have in your mind? Well, you know what, Jazz? Uh, when I think Vancouver, obviously mm. what I and every other tourist here in the city uh, think of is Stanley Park. Mm. So, you know what? Let's, th- let's call this the Never Jordan been one. <laughs> you know, we're going to ship you over there, Ryan, after the show, I swear. Uh, anyways, so, you know, I call this the Jordan 1 Stanley. So, what we're going to put in this Jordan 1 Stanley is, first of all, let's put wheels on this thing. Let's make it like those Healy shoes, because you need shoes to go on these bike lanes if... The bikes ran out. If you can't rent a bike anymore because everybody else stole them, okay, uh, let's have wheels on these shoes. Now, another good thing that we can have on the front of the shoe is let's have like a little, uh, let's have something that represents goose poop on it. How's that? Let's just smudge it on there in the front of the shoe. Because uh, we step on those a lot. You do have to sell park. this, right? Like This has to sell, right? Well, Jazz, we want to make it authentic, right? So I think this is a good option to have there. And you know what? Let's make the shoe also smell like uh, the ocean, you know? Because when you walk down or bike down the Stanley Park seawall, uh-huh. uh, you just have that nice ocean breeze. How's that? How's that? that that's you? your shoe, the Jordan 1 Stanley with wheels on it and... And goose poop, as, as you said. Yeah, and you know, to top it all off, to, to represent oh, um, what's legal here in Vancouver, let's make it from, uh, let's use hemp. Uh, let's, let's make the shoe based on, um, just made out of hemp. Uh-huh. And uh, with a little secret compartment for little goodies that people want to uh, uh, okay. stuff yeah. in there. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's true. How about you, Ryan? 
Uh, well, first of all, that shoe hopefully needs to be fully vegan, right? Like it's not. That is it's, true. It's not a Vancouver shoe unless it's vegan. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right? we'll give them that much. And just again, like Stanley Park. I mean, that's a good theme. It, I don't. I don't know what's so great about Stanley Park. Again, having never been there myself. Uh, you know, shout outs to Bear Creek Park. <laughs> shout outs to Holland Park. That's more my sort of areas there. But, there you uh, go. For, for for me again, sort of keeping along that Jordan One um, sort of theme here. Again, it's probably the most classic shoe. In the history of sneakers, I would yeah, say that was those high top Jordan ones. Uh, I don't know how much you know about sort of classic colorways, Jazz, but there's something called the shattered backboard ones. Uh, those are orange, white, black, and the story behind that was that I believe Michael Jordan was playing like a preseason game over in Italy. I want to say, yeah. and he dunked the ball, and well, he broke the backboard essentially, like the glass oh. shattered. So thus, they made a sneaker called the shattered backboards. Okay, it's kind of going with that theme. I mean, the shattered glass ones uh, like that? okay i mean come on that's I mean, part of the issue yeah i know we're dealing know, with random yeah, vandalism like, i'll give you that much like there's something there again these sneakers you know whatever you put on it colorways i mean i'm thinking obviously some 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 green I okay think. Yeah, i mean yeah. you gotta go kind of cascadia colors blue and green here yeah, yeah. they gotta be waterproof uh they do i mean high tops low tops we could kind of do it all right now again with the montreal sneakers dunks are pretty popular i don't know if you know about the panda dunks here jazz but those are the black and white ones so hype everyone really? and their girlfriend and their grandma has one the pandas pandas i've never heard of those well you, well, you gotta get some you're really? a sneakerhead I'm not a sneakerhead. Well, no, I got the, the Air Jordans that had come out because I, I, my parents wouldn't buy them for me when I was younger. But yeah, yeah. But I didn't hear the, the pandas they're called. They're pan, yeah, well, they're just black and white. Oh, and okay. The panda the color. Pants. Again, okay. when we do design these shoes, you got to think of the resale value as well. All right. Well, I'm going to be, mine are much simpler. I'd call the, my shoes the Nike Air Jordan Protester. It has to be high <laughs> tops for strong ankle support. So when you're on a 15-foot ladder blocking the Massey Bridge... And helping, uh, stopping everyday people. Either the Massey Bridge or Lionsgate Bridge, stopping everyday folks, hardworking folks to get home. Hold on, hold on. The Massey Bridge doesn't exist. Oh, the Massey Tunnel is what I meant. Sorry, Freudian slip. It's coming one day, I tell you. 15-foot ladder. So you, you need the shoes that are vegan, high top for strong ankle support. So when you fall off that bridge and you want to blame somebody for it, except yourself, you have that ankle support. And, of course, a small pocket for uh, cannabis, which would be just for personal use. So those are the Air Jordan Nike protesters. Oh, that's and I perfect. Think, I think those are perfect. You know what, Jazz? Let's add on to that shoe right there. Let's put okay. another little compartment for uh, that can dispense glue. So if you want to glue yourself to a bridge while you're protesting, Oh, that's I perfect. like that. Like you just stamp your foot or something, glue comes out, yeah, and you like can a little glue nozzle. yourself. Oh, exactly. now we're talking. It's a modern-day Spider-Man. <laughs> That's right. There you go. Thank you, gentlemen. No problem. Get yourself some of those sneakers. Again, think about the resale value, Jazz. you got to be able to resell these for double. Nike Air Jordan Protester is the shoe that represents Vancouver. That's I'm going to stick with that. And it's vegan. Just do it. Just do it. That's right. Don't listen. Just do it. Just protest because it's your right. No obligation. You're right. Well, former BC Premier Glenn Clark is no longer the President and Chief Operating Officer of one of Canada's largest private companies. Clark joined the Vancouver-based Jimmy Patterson Group in 2001. He turned 65 this past November. Now, the Patterson Group has over 60,000 employees in 97 countries and did $16 billion in sales in 2022. So what's next? Joining us now is Glenn Clark. Glenn, thank you for speaking to us today. Uh, Good to be here. Uh, what's retirement feel like? I know it's, you're in your, it's, it's just a few weeks for actually just a few first few days, really. Um, what's it like? 
Well, I, I'm hoping it's not retirement, actually, Jazz. I'm hoping I'm just going to do something else. As you know, I was at the Jim Patterson Group for 21, almost 22 years. As soon as I left uh, politics, I've enjoyed every minute of it, actually. But I thought, boy, it'd be nice to try and do something different for for a little bit. Uh, now you're still on on the on a couple of boards with the Patterson yeah. Group, right? Yeah, I'm on the uh, Canfor board and the West Shore Terminals board. So yeah, those are two uh, big BC companies. So it's uh, still be involved in in the in the Jim Patterson world in some respects. Mm-hmm. Now, I, you know, when you're when you're president of a, a large company like the Patterson Group, the days are long. Uh, it requires mm-hmm. extensive travel. Um, but as you say, you thoroughly enjoyed it, but it is a significant workload before you and significant amount of decisions you have to make on a regular basis. Was it a tough decision for you to leave, though? Um, good question. I mean, I've been thinking about it for a while, so not not that difficult by the time I, you know, decided to go. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I've been getting up at 4.15 in the morning, and I work till you know, later at night and then uh, work on Saturdays and often travel a couple nights a week. So I've been doing that for quite a few years now. So uh, it is, it is, does get a bit tiring after a bit. And uh, it's nice to stay home for a little bit, maybe get in shape and a few other things. So uh, a little change of pace would be nice. What were the first couple of days of retirement like? And I know it's not retirement, but I keep calling it retirement. What were the first couple of days uh, where you weren't uh, president of the Patterson Group like? Well, I you know I get up at uh, about six thirty instead of four fifteen and get get to work out in the morning and uh, and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I'm to spend some time. It's nice to spend some time on uh, on myself for a bit and just take a bit of a break mm-hmm. uh, and a little bit of a holiday before doing something else. Um, in regards to um, you leaving the private sector, as you say, twenty one, twenty two years at the Patterson Group, and it is in. Um, a significant job that had a, a huge amount of responsibility to it. But you spent many years in politics as well. Um, a young premier, I think you were 38 years old when you got elected, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, sounds right. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you, you have a passion for politics, and I would argue a talent for it as well. Uh, you're a great communicator. A- any desire on your on your part to uh, perhaps uh, be involved in, in, I would say politics is the right word, in public service again? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind doing that. I, I'm not uh, obviously interested in in partisan politics as much. Uh, I think those days are those days are behind me. Um, but the idea of actually doing something uh, to give back is very interesting to me. I mean, you. I think most time people you know go into business and then go into politics, and so I'm kind of unusual <laughs> into politics young and then went into business. But having um, having done uh, a pretty big stretch in in both those areas. I mean, I do think I do have some some um, understanding, at least, of uh, of what it takes to both run a company and also to to understand the the political world. So it'd be nice to do something, but you know, um, I'm not uh, I'm not desperate for work or anything. So I'm not I'm not uh, I'm just saying I'm I'm prepared and, and and interested, but it's up to others to decide whether they think I can help. What does one from the private sector like yourself bring to the table when it comes to public service? What would you bring to the table? Do you think? Well, you know, for the last uh, twenty odd years, I've kind of been been running companies, including some of the some of the companies of the Jim Patterson Group. And so, I, you know, it's funny, but um, it's a bit of a cliche, I guess. But, you know, whether it's politics or private sector, it's really about leadership. It's about people. It's about trying to figure out, 
you know how to, how to get people working together in, in a common direction. And so I've you know been privileged. One of the nice things about the Jim Patterson Group is it's right. We have uh, you know one minute it's uh, shrunken heads at Ripley's, and the next you know the next minute it's uh, you know magazine distribution or fishing uh, or grocery stores. You know it's such a diversified company that I managed to get uh, a lot of experience in a lot of different areas, and I think that does. Uh, you know, give you a different perspective than you would get even if you were just running one company for a period of time or one 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 division. So um, that diversity um, is uh, something that I think is helpful in politics because in, in 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 public life, you know, you have multiple objectives all the time. You're trying, you know, you're, it's not quite the same as the private sector, but you know, you're juggling a lot of different interests and in trying to solve lots of complex problems. When you joined the Patterson Group, and I believe it was running a sign division at, when you were hired, um, yeah. was your desire one day to work your way up to president, or did you think you'd be running the sign division? Like, the, What was your ambition when you joined the Patterson Group? Uh, that's a good question. Funny you should say that. Yeah, I started as a manager of the sign group in in, um, in British Columbia, really, the Pacific Division, and then, then became vice president of the sign group, which is Western Canada, and then ultimately later became president of the company and of some other companies, you know, I didn't really have a plan to to rise, uh, you know, sort of corporate ladder. I was, uh, first of all, I needed a job. This could, quite candidly, I needed to make a living, and I've surprised myself how much in, enjoyed uh, working on the various companies. And uh, I think I would have been happy, uh, you know, running uh, one of the divisions of the Jim Patterson Group. But Jimmy, of course, uh, took me downtown about ten years ago and put me in charge of a bunch of the companies, or at least had a bunch of the companies reporting to me. And so a little different job, more of a corporate job than uh, than actually uh, on the ground running running some of the companies, which I did for the first 10 years there. Mm-hmm. I, I uh, as, as you know, uh, I did a feature uh, profile for, te- uh, for <laughs> in television for you on you and Jimmy and your relationship. And, uh, you know, Jimmy, I guess in many ways, hasn't changed either. Still shows up to work early, is always engaged. And uh, I think he's about 94 years old now and, and he hasn't changed, has he? Yeah, no, not, he's there seven days a week still. Um, gets in a little later than he used to and goes home a little bit earlier, but he's still there seven days a week. And yes, you're right, he's 94 years old. That's an impressive, very impressive accomplishment. Yeah, I recall um, when I was uh, doing that feature, and I believe uh, I, you know, we followed you to Europe and the Caribbean and and the southern U.S. there with your various divisions and you're having your quarterly meetings. And I remember we got into uh, the Caribbean, I think it was the Bahamas, just for like literally 12 hours for a morning meeting. And uh, uh, as we were leaving, it was at the Fairmont we were staying, and it was beautiful uh, on the water. And I asked Jimmy what he thought of the hotel, and he goes, he's just shaking his head. He goes, Jazz, $450 a night. We're not getting value for this. There's not $450 of value. And the next night, uh, I think we were in Miami, on the outskirts of Miami. It was the Hampton Inn. It was a three-star. The bill, I still remember, the bill came out to $106 for the night. Very modest place, very (laughs) clean. And we're eating uh, breakfast in the lobby. So it's one of those hotels for the the road warriors out there and we're eating basically oatmeal out of a out of a cup and i go jimmy what do you six in the morning I go jimmy what do you think of this he goes he goes this is what i'm talking about jazz this is good value for a dollar and and, he still, <laughs> and it just it, it, it was classic jimmy and what i loved about that trip to miami specifically was you guys would do the boardroom meetings and you're asking the questions that you need to be asking of, of your division but then he walked the factory floor 
just talk to everybody yeah. there, the, the, the everyday worker who comes in, got a mortgage to pay, and he's interacting with them like they're long-lost friends. Like he, and one of the lessons I took from that was he told me, he goes, Jazz, the head office isn't where the business is done. It's the factory floor. Yeah. You always got to stay in touch with your workers and everyday people. And, and I was really impressed with that. Absolutely. And I used to call it, you know, management by walking around. <laughs> you know, you basically, you, um, you, you really, you don't get a sense of what's going on. It doesn't matter. You can see the numbers. And we do, of course, when you're at a corporate office, you see all the numbers, sometimes weekly, the various uh, enterprises that make up the Jim Patterson group. And so that's why you end up being on the road a lot. It's not because you like being on the road. It's not because you have to. It's because that's where you really find out what people are thinking and where they're at. And and it's interesting, you know, and not surprising probably to, to many of your listeners, but, you know, what's going on you, 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 when you're talking to actual people doing the job, not the corporate guys and not the management people, but just the actual people working, you get a pretty good sense pretty quickly of whether the management is on top of things, whether people fairly um, what the challenges are, what the opportunities are, because um, those are the people. And uh, the point of doing that, and it's been a great lesson for me uh, generally. Absolutely. Uh, Glenn, let's talk a little bit about businesses for a moment. You have to worry about many companies in different sectors, and it's been a very challenging environment when it comes to COVID, and now in an era of uh, hyperinflation uh, and uh, geopolitical disruption uh, as well. Give me a sense of where you think Canada and BC are in that broader context. And are we still a competitive economy? And w- sort of what keeps you up at night when it comes to the broader economy and our standard of being when it comes to being competitive globally? Well, first of all, we're clearly in uh, in a bit of a slowdown as, as interest rates start to bite. And particularly in Canada, you know, we have a high degree of people with variable mortgages. And so... They get impacted immediately by these interest rate hikes, and I think uh, they haven't. They're just starting to bite now. So my my fear has always been that the central bank will overcorrect, if it will, a bit. They were a bit slow, I think, raising rates. Now they seem to catch up, and uh, those interest rates are tough on on places like British Columbia because housing prices are so high, housing, um, and so so many young people have stretched so hard to get into the housing market. And now are faced with potentially uh, devastating interest rate increases. So that that is a, a unique problem, I think, in part to British Columbia because we're so dependent in the Lower Mainland on the real estate industry and on immigration uh, to fuel you know the economic growth that we've seen. So I do ner- I'm nervous about that for for our province. And then of course uh, compounding that is our big forest industry um, for a whole bunch of reasons is under enormous challenge. And, uh, and of course, it's, it is impacted by high interest rates because of housing starts in North America. So the two, those two big sort of engines of the economy in British Columbia, both are under enormous strain. Um, I do, and, and then, of course, the last point I'd make is the, the tech sector, the high tech sector, which is a sort of a hidden source of strength for British Columbia, is also struggling as the sort of age of relatively easy money or access to capital is kind of drying up at least at the moment. So we got a lot of challenges, I think, facing us in, in, in BC as we move ahead. Uh, we have lots of strengths as well, which is good, but, but I think there's, um, you know, it's a bit, it's certainly soft 
looking looking ahead the next next uh, certainly next year I'd say if you were asked to give advice uh, to a premier uh, in regards to BC's economy what kind of you know top top line two or three things would you want to advise them on what would you say that we need to course correct on or um, uh, perhaps in implementing new policy what are the two or three things that you think we need to be doing here in British Columbia well I think I mean I think uh, I think the government is doing some of that. One is the housing affordability question is a, is a, is a serious drag on, on economic growth. So we really do have to grapple with that in a multitude of ways. It's not just uh, homelessness, uh, which is a serious problem, but it's also uh, just for middle-class housing, for, for working people. It's become uh, a detriment to attracting people to, to parts of British Columbia. So the big, big uh uh, challenge that has to be dealt with, and I, I'm, I'm really pleased to see the government at least uh, talking about it and, and making some steps. But I think much more needs to be done there. So that would be. I think some of the industries like uh, forestry um, really need to sort of drill down and try to find out what we what we want to do here because, but First Nations uncertainty and the issues around that, which again the government's made you know some progress on it, but I think bolder action. Is uh, is actually necessary to really move this industry along. It might be a smaller industry, but it should be um, a stronger one as we as we move forward with the right with the right policy changes. So there's a couple of areas where I think the, the government can make a difference and is starting to. And I think there's some opportunity. You know, I think there's uh, hopeful signs there. What about um, investment certainty? What I mean by that is. Uh, we, when it comes to the environment, we've always been a very much an activist uh, province. People do care about the environment. They do care about climate change, and they want the, the government to be doing something about it. But at the same time, when a company goes through an environmental assessment or goes through various government processes, they believe at the end of it, if there is an approval, there is an approval. Uh, too often now, we're seeing projects that are approved, yet still have to deal with protest and legal wrangling long after it's... Um, things are approved. I remember I was, when I worked for the LNG industry, I was in India sitting in a boardroom there with the, one of the um, major companies there, and they kept asking me, going back to the same questions, why can't you guys get anything past the finish line? Which is, <laughs> which is like, you've approved yeah. something, yet, you know, we, we've got violence on a natural gas pipeline um, uh, earlier last year. The, go- the federal government's had to buy the, um, the Kinder Morgan pipeline, the former Kinder Morgan pipeline, the Trans Mountain pipeline. Do you worry about our investment climate in this province as well? Because we were a country about rules, laws, and processes. If something is approved, we've gone through the processes, it should go ahead. But now, even if things are approved, it's very difficult to get things built. Well, it's difficult, though, for a reason. I mean, you need, you need social license. And I think one of the challenges in British Columbia is people are passionate about uh, where we live. People want to preserve uh, that incredible natural history that we have here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I get it. Um, but you're right. I mean, the, there, you know, there has to be process. There has to be, there has to be conclusion. I mean, I think generally speaking, I mean, things are getting done. I mean, LNG, this is a big, this project in British Columbia, of course, as you know, is the largest private sector project in the history of the country. So, so, you know, it's hard to say it's not getting done, but was there a lot of hurt, hoops to get there? Whew, my goodness. Yes. But um, maybe that's okay. And that's a good thing, probably, because mm-hmm. it means that they've taken it seriously. But there is a, um, you know, uh, British Columbia does have these uh, unique advantages, and uh, and and so ultimately, competitive um, sort of 
mindset is is going to. I mean, ultimately, those advantages play them play themselves out in in positive ways. I mean, if we're if I guess if we're not careful, we can we can have we can really hurt that. But I think you've seen so far that things can get done. They're just challenging. Mm-hmm. Well, Glenn, uh, I promise I won't call it a retirement. It's a new stage in your life. Uh, <laughs> always enjoyed our conversations. Now that you've got a little bit more time on your hands, I may call upon you occasionally to uh, give us your thoughts on the economy and, and, uh, and politics, perhaps, uh, uh, as well. Uh, thank you so much for your time, and once again, all the best to you in this uh, new stage in your life. My pleasure. It's nice talking to you again. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Well, a compound made in part from a BC sea sponge may offer clues into the prevention and treatment of COVID-19 infection in humans, according to a new study. Now, researchers at the University of British Columbia investigated more than 350 compounds made from natural sources around the world, such as plants, fungi, and marine sponges, in an effort to find new antiviral drugs to treat COVID-19 variants. Now, of those, of those, 26 prevented viral infection in human lung cells that were bathed in them. So a very interesting uh, finding in three of those, of those 26 pre- uh, prevented viral infections, the three were effective in very small doses, which is great to, great to see. Joining me now to talk about the study is Dr. Jimena Perez Vargas. She's a research associate uh, in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at UBC. Dr. Perez Vargas, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, walk me through... Uh, can you explain to our audience the importance of the research that you're doing, but particularly of your findings? So we, we screen a library of uh, natural compounds, well, the product that there is from natural compounds, and we found three compounds that are very effective against COVID-19 infection. And very effective does mean that you need very, very small amount to stop the infection. Uh, in, and how long has your research been been going on? So we are working in this project from two years. Uh, so to screening uh, the, the whole library and then uh, to cut down to the small amount of compounds that they are effective with the virus, but not so well. And then because we have this, the new variants, the different variants that came out, all along the way, we are able to test these compounds with the different variants that uh, appear. Uh, so we test these compounds with the Omicron BA1, BA2, and BM5, and we found that these compounds, uh, these three compounds that are very effective, can block the infection of the Omicron variants, all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, so essentially, these particular compounds are derived from 
natural sources, including um, uh, the sea sponge, which is found here in BC. Are there is there other research that going on that's very similar to w- similar to what you're doing here uh, at UBC? Because uh, one would assume that if you found these three nat- these natural sources in regards to preventing COVID nineteen, uh, that it would be a, it's a significant finding that would have uh, a huge impact in regards to how we confront and deal with COVID-19? Yes, uh, I think here in, in, in UB setting, we are the only ones working with this kind of compounds, this kind of libraries. Uh, but I don't think this is the same scenario for all the world. Like there are other people, in other groups in the in the field that are working with natural compounds. Uh, we know that the, the Chinese medicine work a lot with natural compounds, and this is something that was being studied for years. So, but yeah, we are. We think this is important because this, this, we have lucky that the, the most potent compounds are coming from here, from from BC. Um, these are marine co- uh, products, and we are w- really surprised, uh, good surprise to found this activity in these compounds. Mm-hmm. And, and just to to confirm, they were as you were saying, uh, these three compounds uh, were effective against the Delta variant and several of the Omicron variants. Yes, yes, we they are effective in Omicron BA1, BA2, and BA5. So, yeah, when we published this work, the last uh, variant that we test was BA5. But we we think that this compound is going to be effective with other variants because these compounds are uh, targeting some tools in the cells that the virus uses to to replicate, to spread. So we stop the, this, the, the cells to give this tool to the virus, they're going to stop it. And this is important because for the new variants to come, uh, we know that this is the same scenario. It's going to work in the same way, right? So this tool is not going to be available for the cells to spread for mm-hmm. the the, prox- the new variants that came uh, along. Uh, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. So the, the effective compounds were found in a sea sponge on Howe Sound, and the other uh, was a marine bacteria in Barclay Sound here in BC, and then there was also uh, marine bacteria collected from waters uh, uh, in, near, uh, in and around Newfoundland. Yes, sorry, can you repeat me the question? Uh, I was saying that the, 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 the three most effective compounds, to my understanding, were found in a sea sponge uh, in Howe Sound, uh, there was uh, marine bacteria collected in Barclay Sound here in BC, and there's also marine bacteria collected in, in, in waters in and around Newfoundland. Yeah, exactly. This was a really good surprise for us. We didn't well, expect that the best compounds that we found are from here, right? And it was a really good surprise for us. Uh, but we know that the other compounds from the library could be potentially used with maybe not for COVID, but for other uh, diseases or other viruses could be also be useful mm. to to fight other diseases. Now, what will you be doing next? Uh, you've uh, the, you've had this discovery. Will there be further testing? Yeah, of course. So the first thing that is important is like a, so these compounds came from from natural products, but we don't want to use the natural products to scale up. So we. We now uh, know the compounds. We now we study the, the chemistry of these compounds, and the the next step is to to produce these compounds in the lab a large scale to be able to one day to be bigger, do it bigger. And then 
the the next step also is to to work with animal models to to be sure that this uh, founding that we do in, in the laboratory in cells is uh, this have the same effect in an uh, animal model infection and after that so there the next steps are going to clinical uh, studies to to see if this can go to the public so, but the... this this part of, sorry this part of the study is need, is is not our field of expertise so we need to team up with someone else to have this kind of expertise well it's a fascinating finding and uh, it shows incredible potential uh, and uh, very happy for yourself uh, and your other researchers at UBC. Um, Dr. Prez Vargas, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.